Last week I told you that I would relate a dream that I had recently and, um, and what I think God revealed to me about that dream. Now, apparently that has intrigued a lot of you. <laughs> um, in fact, Hunter told me Wednesday night he prayed and asked the Lord to tell him what the dream was. And I said, if you can do that... <laughs> I will change your name to Daniel because he's the only one I've ever known that did that. But um, I, I, Apparently, I need to learn to set up my sermons in advance like that too if it's had folks thinking about it all week. But um, seriously, most dreams, and I said this last week, most dreams don't bother me and I don't put a lot of weight behind them. I don't, you know, I don't necessarily think that's the best way to hear from God. Um, no, nothing that you ever dream, nothing that I ever dream is going to supersede what God already said in his word. Can we say that before I say anything else? Um, if my dream in any way ever con- contradicts or conflicts with what God has already said in his word, then my dream doesn't need to be interpreted. It just needs to be laid aside. It, it doesn't need to be dwelt upon. So um, I don't normally even look for explanations in dreams because they don't, they don't, you know, I wake up and thought, that was a crazy dream, but it doesn't bother me. It doesn't weigh heavy on me. So I, I don't normally even ask the Lord to, to, um, to, to show me what the dream meant. But um, before I tell you about the dream and interpretation, I think, it, I think it'll help you understand why I dreamed what I dreamed and why it had the impact on me that it had. And, and then I'll tell you what I believe the Lord showed me from that dream. Three Sundays from now, October the 8th, um, will mark 28 years exactly since I've been in ministry here. Um, my first sermon that I preached at Zion Hill was on October the 8th, 1995. I think I missed one Sunday between then and January when the church actually called me, uh, asked me if I would consider being the pastor and moving into the community. But prior to October the 8th, 1995, my life was just kind of, I was just kind of wandering around aimlessly trying to figure out what it is I mean, I had, I had said, Lord, if you want me to preach, I'll preach. But, but doors were not opening for me to go and pastor anywhere. I, everybody wanted to hear my, my testimony because I had a radical conversion experience from a life of drugs and alcohol abuse, um, you know, to, to literally. Um, and I, I told my church they was crazy for this, but I was converted in 1993, and I was teaching a Sunday school class in January '94. <laughs> But now I was raised in the church, so I knew what the Bible said, even though I wasn't living it. They ordained me as a deacon in 1994. And I think they were just trying to hold on to me, not let me slip back out in the world. But, and, and then I surrendered to the call to preach not long after that. And I had opportunities to go preach at this place and that place and fill in here and fill in there. But I was, I, honestly, I was pretty aimless. And I didn't know what God wanted me to do and where he wanted me to do it. And so, um, and my work at that particular time as a mechanic, my work, I knew that wasn't my purpose. I knew that wasn't, it was just a paycheck. I worked for a paycheck. Nothing wrong with working for a paycheck, but that, that, I could not tell you that this is my purpose um, in life. Um, God's calling me here changed that. When God called me here, I knew what my purpose was. For the first time in my life, I understood what God wanted me to do. Now, I didn't know how to do it. Um, 
I was lost as a duck in the desert the first few years because I, I don't have preachers in my family and I, I gleaned from some that I knew asking advice and counsel. Um, but when God called me here, I knew that my purpose, at least for the foreseeable future, I didn't know how long that would be. I had no idea it would be 28 years. I knew where I was supposed to be and what I was supposed to be doing. And so I, I settled into trying to do what God called me to do. Now, if God called me elsewhere tomorrow, and I pray that he don't. I really, I tell people this all the time. I don't want to stay here longer than I'm supposed to stay here. But if the Lord lets me and would allow me to, um, I'd, love, um, I'd love to spend the rest of my life in ministry here. Now, I don't want you to, I don't want you to think, that God can't lead all of us in a different direction because he can. But if, if I had to ask him for what my heart's desire is, I would say let me, let me breathe my dying breath as the pastor of Zion Hill Church. Um, if he called me somewhere else tomorrow, I'd never be able to grow like I've grown since I've been here. If he called me elsewhere, I, I would never be able to experience what I have experienced here. Um, I won't ever be able to minister anywhere else for as long as I've been able to minister here. I don't look, I, I would be 80-something years old, and I doubt very seriously I'll be in any shape standing in a pulpit by that time. Not at the rate I'm falling apart at 57. <laughs> so, um, but I won't ever be able to spend the amount of time in ministry that I've spent here. I, I, won't, I won't be able to baptize my kids and grandkids. And watch them grow. So this is my life's purpose. And, and I, I don't want you to take this the wrong way, but up until right now, this is my life's work. This is what God called me to do. And I'm, I'm going somewhere with this, so hang on. I'm going to get to the dream, I promise you. But I really do believe it will help you understand the crazy dream if I set it up a little bit. Because when I say this is my life's work, I also want to hasten to say that I have never, and God is my witness, I have never looked across the street from my parsonage at this place and said, or thought, look what I did. And I know preachers get, we're kind of like pitchers and quarterbacks. When everything's going well, we get too much credit. And when everything's going bad, we get too much blame. I've never looked across the street and said, look at what I have done. It's not about me. Don't make it about me. This is a God thing. This ain't a key thing. Um, this is a work that God has been doing here for a long time. And long before I came here, the Lord was plowing the ground and planting the seeds and hearing the prayers of faithful people that have come before me and faithful people that have walked with me through this journey of the last 28 years. And uh, even, even when I have been <clears throat> weak, even when I have failed, even when I have took missteps in ministry, God has been gracious. His grace has been sufficient. And we've pressed through um, those trying seasons. His grace has been enough. I've been the beneficiary of His grace. I've been the beneficiary of your faithfulness and other faithfulness before me. This isn't my church. This isn't even our church. This is His church. And, and, and the work that is done here is the work that God has done in us and through us. And I pray that he prospers it for generations to come. And, and if he tarries his coming, I hope he prospers it even long after I'm gone. Now, having said that, um, I would wager, if I was a betting man, 
I would wager that nobody thinks about or worries about the present and the future of this church more than I do. I know a lot of you got roots here that go way back, way further than mine do. Some of you have been a part of this church all of your life. And, and you may think about it and worry about it as much as I do. But I, won't, I don't think anybody here thinks about the ministry of this church right now and in the future than, than I do. And, and I don't want to mess up what God has done. I didn't do it, but I can't get in the way. I can mess it up, and, and I don't have to tell you. Um, we've seen it happen. Um, pastors who have moral failures, often, the church often never regains their footing after that. It splinters them. I pray all the time, God, don't let me ever fail and bring shame and reproach to your cause and your kingdom or this church. Um, just ministry missteps sometimes. And we almost had one way back yonder, and I'm not going to go back and rehash that, but it was primarily my fault. And until I took responsibility for it, the church, I'd never, there was so much tension when we gathered together. And, and I, I spent many sleepless nights just asking God to show me what to do. And I had to stand up and take responsibility for my part in creating that disunity and division. Sometimes those ministry missteps can send a church spiraling and into disunity. And honestly, I've seen some pastors that have just got apathetic. They reached a plateau in their ministry and they thought, you know, things are going well. Uh, I, I'm just going to sit back and relax and, and uh, enjoy the rest of my time here. And pastoral apathy sometimes results in the decline of a church. I've seen it happen too many times in other places. And, and so um, if, if God called me home or God called me elsewhere, I, I don't ever want to see Zion Hill Church go backwards. I don't ever want to see the church go backwards. Not in its, not in its growth, not in its influence, not in its um, kingdom calling and purpose. And, um, and I, I really think that that is what predicated the dream. So let me get to the dream. A few weeks ago, some of you may not know this, we did a little bit of a poll just trying to ask the church what to do about the overcrowding. Uh, sanctuary overcrowding. We've got folks in overflow every week. And I know there's some empty seats in here. And some of them could be in here. Um, but, some, but some of these pews right now are packed. And it's like that on a lot of Sundays. Um, where it's just so full that when guests walk in the back door, they don't know where to go. And so, and we, I've put it off. We've talked about it for years. I've had people putting a bug in my ear for years. And, and I, I know that something has to be done. And, and I'm just not sure... Wasn't sure exactly what. I had my thoughts and ideas. So I, we did a poll. Basically gave some options about what we can do from here. Um, I took a tape measure last week and measured every pew in this church. Actually, I didn't have to measure every one because some of them are the same length. But I did some multiplication, some math with a calculator. <laughs> now, if you use an 18-inch per seat rule, and most people say, 18 to 20 inches, 20 inches to be on the safe side. I used 18, and honestly, some of us need more than 18. And some of us need more than 20, but we're going to leave that alone. 
So if you did an 18 inch rule for, for this room, this room will seat two, 220 people. Now, I, when, when we built it, the builder said close to 300, but that was including choir space and stuff up here. 220 people, 18 inches. And he may use the 14 inch rule because we were all skinnier back then. <laughs> I can show you pictures to prove it. <laughs> Most of us were skinnier, I'll say that. Um, 80%, there's an 80-20 rule that stands in every church that I've ever known anything about in every research that when a church reaches 80% of its capacity, it can't grow anymore because people won't come in and try to find a space in a crowded room. So 18% of 220 is 176. Our membership role is bigger than our church is right now. If you include the kids that haven't been baptized yet, that's still a part of this church. Our membership role, and we have, we have an active membership role. This is not a bloated membership role. We go back every year, and people that no longer attend a church, their names are removed from the role, and so the membership role is accurate. And we have more people who are on our role than we have space to sit them down in in this building. And, and that's where we are. And, and I'm just going to tell you, in 2003, we didn't see this. When we left that old building, it would seat 108 in that same rule, 54 on each side. And so our thought was, let's double. Let's, do our, let's, let's just double the space that we have. And we did. A little more double. But we didn't see in 2003 what God was going to do. And I would venture to say that... The building committee on, in the 1960 sanctuary didn't see that either. They didn't know what would happen in the 90s. Uh, I've, I've heard some of those older ladies say that they, there were Sundays that they sat on the front porch, three or four of them, and sang and prayed and had Bible study together. And that was when the church was only meeting every other week for church, Sunday school every week. But I don't think they foresaw us outgrowing that sanctuary. We didn't foresee outgrowing this sanctuary. Um, and I, I, you know what? We just got to be honest. Sometimes our faith relies more on what we can see than we'll admit. I mean, we, we, can, we can press our faith a little bit, but we don't want to press it too far beyond what we can actually see. So anyway, I said all that to say this. We're full again. We're full. And, and, and I thought that a poll was good to give the church a voice rather than just bring it out on the floor of a business meeting, decide what we need to do. Just do an anonymous poll and let's just kind of feel where the church is at and what the church wants to do. And I'm going to be honest with you, I didn't expect as much diversity as I got. And I didn't, the first Sunday there were a bunch turned in, but I waited a few days, some more were turned in. And when I, when I finally looked at that poll, I, I was a little bit taken back by the diversity of thought. Now let me say this, I'm not angry at anybody, I'm not, there ain't nobody right and ain't nobody wrong. It was an opinion, it was a preference. <clears throat> and we probably all have the same worries about going to two services that I've had all along. Um, I wish there was a way to expand this building. We're landlocked. We almost got in trouble for building as close to the cemeteries we did. We, I don't know if y'all know, but there was a website set up 
grave concerns that we got accused of exhuming bodies to put this building in its place. We can't go that way. <laughs> and we can't go that way because we'll be on the right of way. And Sister Ovita, I remember her saying, I think it's when we were building the Family Life Center, she asked the question, do we need to start tearing down some buildings? Now that was forward thinking. But I'm, I thought, no, and we've made good use out of those facilities. It's, the renovation's beautiful. I love what we did. We can't connect to the building behind us. They wouldn't let us do that to begin with. That hallway is super fireproofed, and that was as close as they would let us get to those old buildings. So, so we're kind of stuck in this place, and, and, and the pole was my idea, so I guess you could say I scared myself. <laughs> And I went to bed anxious that I was doing the wrong thing. And, and you guys didn't do anything. I don't want you, I don't, I'm not laying the blame on you. This was, the poll was my idea and the anxiety that I felt was all mine. And then I had this dream. I went to bed that night troubled, uh, hard to go to sleep. Anxious because for the first time in a long time, I sensed a little bit of disagreement. And I know we don't always agree on everything. But for some reason, this got to me a little bit more than it normally does. And so anyway, I went to, I went to sleep. And in, in this dream, I was sitting right there where I always sit. And um, we had a, a child. Y'all, I, I miss our kids singing. I, I miss the children singing. Send them to sing. I don't ever tell a child, no, you can't sing. But we had a child that came and sang. And then all of a sudden there was a line of children behind that one. Um, and the first one sang, legitimately sang. But the others just stood up and started playing on the stage. They weren't singing, they were just playing. And, uh, and, and I, you know, I tolerated it for a few minutes. And then it just like it kept going and kept going and kept going. And so um, I stopped it. I'm like, look, they're, not, they're, this, they're no longer singing. They're no longer ministering. They're playing. And I stopped it. And immediately I, had, I worried about the response that I would get to that correction. It was in the dream. Now I thought parents are going to be mad at me. Because I just stopped their kids from playing on the stage in a worship service. And then, and then some guys came down the aisle, and I'm not going to go into a graphic description of them. But it was very obvious that they were thugs. All right? They, were, they didn't have shirts on. Uh, a couple of them had tank top shirts on, but the rest of them were shirtless. Bandanas tied around their head. They looked like gang members. And they came walking down the aisle, and I'm still sitting right here, and one of them had a handful of pennies and threw it on the communion table and laughed. And then the whole group walked down and sat on the stage there and were just being raucous. And, um, and I stopped them and said, you're going to have to get out. I'm not going to tolerate the, ir the irreverence to God's house that you're showing. And they just laughed again. And so now I'm, I'm caught there like I got parents mad at me because I made their kids stop. And now I've tried to rebuke these people and they're not, um, they're not leaving. And uh, 
And then an old man. I, I would tell you who he looked like, but I'm not going to do that. Because um, I don't want to call any names, but I, I, who he reminded me of. But it was an old man with white hair and a cane who had been faithful. And he walked down the aisle, and, and it was obvious to me that he couldn't kneel, but he came to the communion table, that communion table, and, and bent over with his arms on the communion table and began to pray. And then a little kid, and I don't know who the kid looked like, but it was a little kid, came out of the pew and came, and, and, and because he was able, instead of standing next to the old man, he knelt down and began to pray. And, and so at that point in the dream, um, I turned around to look behind me, and the church was full, just like it is this morning. And some of the people in the church had, and I didn't see names and faces, but some of the people in the church had their head down, and it was obvious to me that they were praying too. Some of them were just giving an affirmative nod back to me that they agreed with me. And then I heard even a few, and this is rare at Zion Hill, but I even heard a few amens. But then I woke up, and, and, and I, was tr I was troubled when I woke up. Um, I, and what worried me is the, 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 with the kids playing and the people and me rebuking and trying to correct, what, what worried me, I think, when I woke up was, was, is this a sign of disunity that's coming? Is this a, is this a mistake that I have made that's going to set the church in a place of disunity? Um, have I given the devil a foothold that I didn't mean to give him? And so Cindy left for work, and, um, and I just prayed for some clarity. Because the dream troubled me. I was troubled when I went to bed, and I was troubled when I woke up because of this dream. And so I prayed for some clarity. And, uh, and it didn't come right away. I didn't, God didn't speak to me in an audible voice. I didn't have clarity right away. I wasn't sure. But I can tell you the first thing that I heard God say to me in my spirit was, do I bring fear? Do I bring fear? Do I, do I create anxiety? And I'm like, no, that ain't you. That ain't you because you told me 365 times in the Bible not to be anxious not to be afraid. And so that, that's not you. But I need to know what this means and what I need to do uh, moving forward. And so this is what I feel like the Lord said to me about the dream. And like I said, I'm, this is, you won't hear me do this very often. I don't think you've ever heard me do this before. But this is what I felt like the Lord said to me in the next few days about the dream. And I should have seen it early on, but I think... The enemy was doing his very best to make me feel so anxious about it um, and to see if I would make a misstep along the way. But here's what the Lord said. The children in the church are just representative of immaturity. The children were just representative of immaturity. And the thugs were, were representative of carnality, of of people walking in the flesh. And there's a little bit of both of that in all of us. 
And I'm not saying all of you. I'm saying me too. There's still areas of my life that I need to grow up in. And there's still areas of my life that I struggle with the carnal man side of me. And so there's a little bit of that in every Christian. And there's a little bit of that, quite honestly, in every church. And it needs to be addressed. I need to address it in my life. You need to address it in your life. There, come, there comes a time when it has to be addressed in the church. And even sometimes um, rebuked in the church. But here's what God said to me through that old man and that young boy and the people that were behind me with their heads bowed and the people that were nodding to me affirmatively and, the, and those few brave souls that said amen. Is that this is a church that prays. This is a church that is maturing. And this is a church that can handle and accept rebuke and correction. So this is what the... And, and I know some of you saying that wasn't as big a deal as I thought it was going to be. But <laughs> it, and it might not have been to you, but I'm telling you, it gave me some peace. But, but this, I think, was God confirming to me that Zion Hill is made up. And I'm not, I'm, this ain't me just trying to butter your bread, all right? This ain't me just trying to exalt you or lift you up. But this is what the Lord confirmed to me in that dream, especially with that old man and that young child praying side by side together, is that Zion Hill is made up of good, growing children of God of every age. That we are all changing for the better. Some slower than others, some faster than others. But Zion Hill is a good, growing church. Spiritually, numerically, and in, in, in every way. And, and, I, and I believe the Lord said, what I have started, I'm going to finish. The work that I've begun, I'm going to finish. In me, in you, and in this church as a whole. And the testings, which are going to come, we're going to have testings. We talked about this some Wednesday night. There are going to be trials that come. There are going to be testings that come. There are going to be places where we have to make some hard choices. Listen, we've made a bunch of them through the years. A bunch of them. Where all of us were worried about what was next. But, but the Lord said to me in his dream that, listen, this is a good church. The people are growing the, the testings and the trials are not going to do anything but purify it and make it better. And, and I, I believe I can prove Zion Hill's maturity. I think we get down on ourselves, and I said this last week, um, that I, I, could, I could tell you where our weaknesses are, and I could tell you where we need to improve, but I want to tell you, too, that Zion Hill's maturity, I think, is, is seen in its commitment to the Word of God. This church is committed. You guys, you, you, you not only let me preach the word of God without apology, you encourage me to preach the word of God without apology. You are committed to what the word says. 
I think the maturity is seen in the love that we have for each other. I don't think our love is fake. I think our love is real. I think it's genuine. I believe it's unfeigned. I think I can see it in a thousand ways every week. Um, how this church loves each other, and you love me, and you show me that you love me. It ain't, it ain't, it ain't a fake thing. It is a genuine. People that come here say, "I the friendliness of the church, the the fellowship that you guys enjoy with each other, the laughter and the friendships, is a testimony to the love that you have, the humility of this church." Um, listen, we're not looking for for the world's applause. Um, I think one of the most exciting things that we've done in my ministry here is that we're going to give away a bunch of money at the end of this year um, to missions and ministries um, that are doing a phenomenal work. And we're not, and nobody, we don't want to broadcast it. We don't want to tell everybody what we did and who we did it for. We just want the Lord to be glorified in it. I think the maturity of the church is seen in the unity that we have and the peace that we've had. Trust me, I hear the horror stories um, we got a lot more unity and a lot more peace than a whole bunch of churches, even in our community, have. The service, the way that we serve one another, the way that we serve the community um, around us. Brother Bill Mullis loves to come out here for our New Year's Eve seafood feast. He, said, he says it everywhere I go when he's introduced to me. He said, you want to see a church that loves serving people? Go eat New Year's. He said, they'll shuck your oysters for you. That's a big deal to Brother Bill, apparently, that, they, that somebody will shuck oysters for as long as he wants to eat them. But you, but you serve in a thousand other ways. And, and then just the, the generosity. The generosity. John Hill doesn't take a second seat. To, we don't take a back seat to anybody when it comes to being generous. To our gifts, to other people. Um, to the way that we take care of each other. And I, 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 I say this, I get cards in the mail sometimes, people thanking me, and I'm not, I don't know what they're thanking me for, but I'm, somebody did something. <laughs> and, um, and that's just the left hand not knowing what the right hand's doing, but God is being glorified in it. And so I want to just say this to you, change is always going to be hard. It's always going to be hard. But you can't grow without changing. That's true of your body. That's true of your family. That's true of this church. You, you cannot grow without changing. Change or growth necessitates us to adapt and to change. It's always going to be hard. But I think all of us would agree on this. We, they, I can't say to God, okay, that's enough. We've had enough. We don't want any more. Hold up, hold up, hold up. I ain't going to say that. I can't say that. I don't know why the Lord keeps sending folks here. I don't know why folks drive 40 miles to get here. I'm glad they do. I don't think he's done with us yet. And, and uh, you know, the, 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 the poll, it was not, like I said, there was a good bit of diversity, but, but generally... And the majority said what we're going to do and what I felt like was the easiest thing for us to do from the very beginning is that beginning on, on um, October the 15th, we're going to wait till the 15th, um, we're going to have an 8 a.m. service. And it may just be me preaching at 8 a.m. So if you're, big, if you, if you're one that can't, that can't worship without the music, then you just keep coming at 1045. 
Um, we may can draft Kim or Pam or somebody to come a little bit early and play a couple songs for us at 8 a.m. But one of the benefits the 8 a.m. service is going to have is that I'm going to be up against the wall and I can't preach on and on and on and on because i got another service coming up behind it. <laughs> and Sunday school. So, so some of y'all that worry how long I'm going to preach, 8 a.m. may be for you. And that may benefit the 1045 service because I may learn to say what I need to say in the shorter span times. It might be a win-win for us all. But I, I need to move in time for the praise team to get some practice in. So it's, it may just be preaching only. We'll have Sunday school same time we always have. By the way, Sunday school's filling up. I remember when Ray, my cousin, went to Hickox. They wound up having to do two Sunday schools and two church services before they built their new facility. They flip-flop. Half would go to Sunday school, another half church, and then the other half would go to, the, they were just musical chairs. And we may have to do that. This is going to be an evolution of <laughs> how we do things. Um, but we're going to meet for Sunday school at 930, 9.30 and then regular service like we have right now at 10.45. Um, and, and let me just say, if it don't work, if we start going backwards, we'll go back to like we're doing um, we'll, or we'll try something different but we've got to do something and I think that this is the step that we've got to make this is what the majority of you said and I don't think the ones who had different opinions are um, regarding that I don't think in any sense of the word that you guys were that you were wrong or that you were being malicious or that you were bringing disunity I asked for your opinion and your preference and you told me um, and I'm not I, I just think that this is the route that we've got to go for right now and that may change and evolve as we move forward. But this is what I believe the Lord would have us to do. Can I preach for just a minute? What time is it? Oh, I got time. They, they didn't pick up the chicken until 11.30. So it took them 20 minutes to get here. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Thank you for indulging me with that dream. I promise you that won't be a regular occurrence. Um, in fact, I would rather not dream. Y'all ever just pray and say, Lord, I don't want to know nothing. I mean, I prayed this. Lord, I don't want to know nothing from the time my eyes close to the time they wake up in the morning. I want that deep sleep where I don't even know I'm in the world at that particular point in time. Um, that's the kind of rest that I, that I want. But... I, I felt like I almost told you this the Sunday after I had it, and the Lord said, nah, not yet. And so I, I waited until God gave me some confirmation um, and some, some understanding. And so um, thank you for indulging me. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good report. We just saw a video of a lot of the elders, a lot of those old... Um, faithful members who had faith and who obtained a good report by it. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts and by it he being dead yet speaketh. So there's faith that's been manifested in a, a good sacrifice, a good offering. 
By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation he had this testimony that he pleased God. If you go back and read the Genesis account of Enoch, the Bible says that he walked with God. He not only had faith, but that he walked with God. Verse 6 says, But without faith it is impossible to please him, to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So I want to just start out with a simple statement this morning that's true, and I want us just to dig into it for a few minutes. A simple statement, and it is this. Everybody has faith. Now, I could use Romans 12, 3 that says, God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith, but I believe that would be twisting the Scripture. And that's not really what I mean when I say everybody has faith. Um, I don't think everybody has saving faith. I don't think everybody has faith in God the way the Bible describes faith in God. We're going to get more into that. Um, But that passage of Scripture in Romans is speaking specifically to Christians and talking about that we all have different levels or different measures of faith and that faith is being manifested in the gifts that we give. So I can't use that passage of Scripture to say everybody has some faith in God. I think we all have some revelation and some light about who God is and about what God's done, but not, but not all of us have faith in Him. Um, speaking of measure, how many of you have ever used a tape measure? I used one last week. I think if we, if we be honest, everybody in this room, you may not have used a tape measure like carpenters use, but, but you ladies have used those tapes that you measure dresses. I watched my mom use them thousands of times. When I was a kid, she made dresses for my sisters and her sisters and everybody else's sisters, I think. Um, we, we probably all used a tape measure at some point in our life to build something for information. Will this refrigerator fit in that door if I buy it? Um, to, to prove something, we've all used a tape measure for some reason. Did you, did you, were you able to upload that? What's up with that? That makes my OCD nutty right there, boy. It make you question everything, don't it? So here's a, here, here's, a, here's a question for you. How's the best way to check another tape measure's accuracy? <laughs> Obviously, you can't use another tape measure. <laughs> so... You can move. When I say everybody has faith, I don't mean that everybody has faith in God, not faith in the saving sense. When I say that everybody has faith, I mean that everybody has faith in something. Everybody has faith in something. We all exercise faith every day in a multitude of ways that we're not even really con- we're not even cognizant of the fact that I'm exercising some faith in what I'm about to do what I'm about to use. We exercise faith every time we pull a tape measure on something that that tape measure is going to be accurate. Now what would be a nightmare is if you had one of those tape measures that you were using inside of a building and another one you were using at the saw. You get frustrated really quick then. So so we we all put faith in something every 
today. And I'm going to give you some illustrations in a little while um, about that and make you think. And there's a lot of them. You could think of, of a, a, a bunch more than I could list, but I want to list about three for you. But I want to ask, before, before I give you those illustrations, I want to ask and answer a couple of important questions about what biblical faith is. Not just faith in general, but what is biblical faith? What is saving faith? look like what is faith and I, I understand that Hebrews chapter 11 says faith is the substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen but when you see that word faith is it doesn't necessarily mean that those next two words define faith what those next two words are when it says substance and evidence and we're going to get into that in a, in a few minutes but but those words are not as definitive as they are they're not as definitive of what faith is as they are descriptive of what faith does. Now, I looked in Webster, and I'm going to just tell you, the first definition Webster got, you cannot apply it to biblical faith. All right? Webster got it wrong in the first definition, especially when you're talking about biblical faith. Some of, some of the other definitions were, were more applicable to, to, um, to biblical faith. But here's the first definition Webster gave to faith. Unquestioning belief that does not require proof or evidence. That's not a good definition of biblical faith. Because there is evidence. There is a measure of proof. And it's not a sin for us to have questions about things. I have questions about things. I think there are some questions that I have that I won't have answered until I see him face to face. So I don't like that definition. Here's a better one. I think Webster got a little bit closer in the next definition. Complete trust, confidence, or reliance. Allegiance to some person or thing. Loyalty. Now that was kind of a, that's the next couple of definitions in line. That looks more like what biblical faith is. To, to have trust in, to have confidence in, to have reliance upon, to have allegiance to, to be loyal to. Of course, if you're talking about Christian faith, it is to have trust in, confidence, reliance upon, allegiance to, and loyalty to Christ. But the, but the Strong's Concordant definition that, that gives us the definition of the Greek word, which is P-I-S-T-I-S, it's almost an accounting term that means that you, that you place yourself under or you place yourself with or you place yourself alongside of. Um, it literally means conviction of a truth of anything. Conviction of a truth of something. That's what faith is. That I, that I have a, a, a solid, that I stand upon this as being true. I believe it and I trust myself to it. So that's what faith is. Why does faith please God? I think the answer to that question lies in those two words that you were used to describe faith, those descriptive words, substance and evidence. Simply put, you, look, you can look these words up yourself in a Strong's Concordance, and, and you'll see that these same kind of, and, and they'll put it in a definition form and give you some other places that's been translated, but I think this is accurate to say this. Simply put, substance means persuasion with expectation. I am persuaded that this is true, and it leaves me with, a, with an expectation. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. I am persuaded that this is true, and I have an expectation of what it will bring to me. 
And then the next word is the evidence of things unseen. And the two words that you'll see most often um, in association with that evidence is a conviction of something that results in a demonstration of your confidence in it. A conviction of something that results in a demonstration of it. I've shared this illustration before about the man um, that went over Niagara Falls, supposedly a true story, um, in a wheelbarrow. He walked across the tightrope Niagara Falls by himself first. Then he took an empty wheelbarrow, went across and back. Um, then he took a wheelbarrow with 150, 200 pounds of sand loaded in it, went across and back. And then he asked all the people in the crowd, do you believe that I could roll 200 pounds in a wheelbarrow across this tightrope in Niagara Falls? And everybody in the crowd said, yeah, we just saw you. And he said, get in. Who wants to go first? <laughs> but this is what faith is. It is a conviction that, yeah, you can. But then there's a demonstration that follows that, that not only do I think you can or believe you can, um, but I'm going to demonstrate it by trusting myself to you. That's the evidence of things unseen. So here, here's what I, this is why I believe faith pleases God. Because faith is what motivates us and moves us. When you trust something, when you have confidence in something, when, when, you, are, when you are persuaded that this is true, when you have an expectation that, that this is what that will bring you, when you have a conviction that this is true and you're willing to demonstrate that, then, 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 then it's simple. Faith motivates us and moves us to step out on that faith and to exercise it. It causes us to, to, we're persuaded, we expect, we're convicted, and it makes us demonstrate our trust in it. Speaking of biblical faith, um, we, we, faith, we believe that God is this, we believe that God has said this, and then we demonstrate it by stepping into that and moving forward in it. So why does faith please God? Because it moves his people to do what he has said for us to do. It moved Abel to bring a better sacrifice. It moved Enoch to walk with God. It moved Noah to build a boat to the saving of his family. It, it moved um, Abraham to leave the country that he called home and go to a place he'd never seen. It moved Abraham to offer his son upon an altar to become a picture of what Christ has done for us. Uh, every, all through that 11th chapter of Hebrews, you're going to see where people had faith and it moved them to do certain things that honored God, that glorified God, that exalted God, that accomplished God's purpose for their lives. And so it, faith pleases God because if God has any purpose at all for mankind, it will only be realized as we have faith in Him and we are moved and motivated by that faith. So who has faith? And don't say everybody because everybody don't have biblical faith. Everybody's got faith in something, but when you talk about biblical faith, saving faith, faith in Christ... Who has faith? And uh, I'm not going to take the time to just dig all of this out, but I can prove it. I promise you I can prove it, not only in the 11th chapter of Hebrews, but all over the Scriptures. Faith is not just a mental assent that God exists, okay? That's, that's the first part of faith. But here's what faith is. Here's what biblical faith is. Those who, those who believe in God. That's number one. Belief in God. He that cometh to God must believe that he is. So it starts with, yes, I believe in God. 
The second measure of biblical faith is those who believe God. Not this that I believe that God is this entity who created everything that we see, but I believe that what God says is true. I not only believe God is true, but I believe what God says is true. And then the third part of that faith is that I am moved and motivated by my belief to do what God says. So it is confidence that God is. It is confidence that God has revealed His will by His Word. And it is confidence that being in God's will brings reward with it. That if I honor God by my faith, God will honor me with the reward of eternal life. That's who has faith. Believe in God. Listen, the Bible says that, that the devils believe and tremble. They, got, they, got, they know that there's a God. There's no doubt in Satan's mind that there's a God. He's created just like we are. He was in the garden with God. The Bible tells us about his, his existence with God before he fell. The devils believe. That's where their, that's where their faith stops. They are, they, they, they are not believing what God said. They are not moved and motivated by what God said. So, and, and I, you could, we could go into a lot of detail when you talk about believing what God said. I believe, well, I believe what God said about our sin, that we're all sinners. I believe that. I believe none of us are righteous, not one of us. I believe all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. I believe sin's wages are death. Destruction. There's nothing good that comes of it. I also believe that Christ's atonement and victory over sin is, is there for anybody who will receive it by faith. And that, that in that we have His forgiveness, we have His mercy, we have His grace. He gives us a new life, an abundant life, an eternal life, and heaven as our home. I believe what God said about everything that He said. And I'm willing to stand on that, to be moved by that, to be motivated that, by that, to preach that and proclaim that. That's who has faith. Now, where is your faith? Where is your faith? Before I answer that in the biblical sense, I want to get, I, I, and this is really what I want you to do with this. I want you to understand, because there are some people that have such a hard time taking a step of faith to Jesus. I mean, they got all these questions that they don't have answers to. I don't have answers to all my questions yet. But I think he's answered enough for me to say, okay, I believe you are, I believe what you said, and I believe I'm going to do what you said because I think that's the best way for me to live my life and to inherit your reward. So what I want you to do with these examples, though, is this. I want you to see how every day you put your faith in fallible things things that will let you down, people who will let you down every day. And you do that without thought. You do that largely without thought. You, you move to that more quickly. We do. We all do. And I'm going to give you three examples where we put our faith every day. Infallible things and in people. Do y'all put your money in a bank? Now some of you may not. But when you deposit your hard-earned money in a bank, you do that because you believe it is safe, 
that it is accessible and that if that bank fails, your money is insured. If somebody robs it, your money's still going to be there for you. I put my money in a bank. Do banks ever fail? Every day. Are bank systems ever breached? Every day. Have banks ever closed down and not given people access to their money? They have. There's actually a federal law that says in an emergency situation, the federal government can declare a bank holiday. They can shut the banks down and keep you from rushing the banks and getting your money out. Now, maybe y'all got a whole lot more confidence in the government than I do, but if they're the ones that's insuring my money in the bank, that don't make me feel real good about the insurance that's being offered to me. So why do we trust them? You say, well, that's the best option we got besides a mason jar in the backyard. My granddaddy trusted the mason jars. <laughs> when he died, my daddy like dug the house up looking for them. <laughs> I helped him with a shovel that deep. About this far down, daddy found a buffalo nickel. And daddy thought, we own it. We owned the stash. <laughs> no, nah, we wasn't on the stash. We just dug a big hole like to make the chimney collapse on us. My granddaddy didn't believe in banks. He didn't trust them. So he didn't put his money there. Don't know where he put it. <laughs> but apparently it wasn't much better than a bank for his descendants. We trust them because other people have trusted them. We trusted them. We trust them because you know there may be a glitch along the way. I'm sure everybody's been frustrated at some point because they got something wrong. They entered something wrong. Your your account balance didn't balance with their account balance, and you had to go make some corrections. But we still trust them because they've been good to other people. They've been good to us so far, and it's a better alternative than burying the backyard and having to dig it up every time you need it. Pharmaceuticals, prescription and over-the-counter. Now, my wife will tell you, boy, I trust me some medicine. Because if I get a little sniffle, I'll eat everything in the medicine cabinet. <laughs> I do not like to be sick. She frustrates me. She's like, I got a headache. She's like, I, have you taken anything? No. <laughs> Son, I'm going to tell you something. I love me some Tylenol Extra Strength. Arthritis Strength is what I'm using now. If I feel a hint of a headache, I'm going for the Tylenol. So I'm not just talking about the... I'm talking about how, how quickly we trust ourselves to medication. Prescription, over-the-counter, vaccines, vitamins, supplements, natural, artificial. Most of us use them. In some form or fashion, we use them because we believe that they will somehow improve our health, protect us from risk, heal us when we're sick. And, and listen, here's the truth. Nearly all, of them have, nearly all of them have risk. You see them commercials on TV? 
where they give you all this good stuff about the medication, and in the last 15 seconds, they got an auctioneer <laughs> who tells you what's wrong and what might happen. And I mean, I'm, I'm trying to listen. I'm like, you might die if you take this. And I'm like, no, nope, I don't want it. But the truth is, we all taking some of that. And if you read what comes, side effects, interactions, don't take this with that. Um, and then you trust them the doses right for you. The dispensing is right for you. Whoever put it together put the right thing in it. I don't know whether they did or not. Y'all ever thought about that? I put a lot of trust in that doctor and nurse when I let them stick that thing in my backside. That what's supposed to be in that syringe is in that syringe. And I think they, they believe, they put the confidence in it too. That what's been given to us is what we're, what we believe is going to help them. I'm not blaming them. I'm just saying that we put our confidence in these things all the time. And understanding that there are bad interactions, there, there are some that won't work for us. We put a measure of faith in the testing. We put a measure of faith in the manufacturing. We put a measure of faith in the marketing. We put a measure of faith uh, in, in the prescribing. We put a measure of faith in the filling. We put a measure of faith in the administration of it. We're putting faith in all of that system. And you don't, I don't think about that, you. I mean, I don't. When I pop that pill in my mouth, I'm confident that everybody that touched that ahead of me did the right thing. I mean, we are. I'm not telling you not to do those things because if I get a headache this evening, I'm going to the medicine cabinet. If I get an infection and get sick tomorrow, I'm going to the doctor. I don't like to be sick. I think these things are gifts from God. But... We put a lot of faith in the whole networking system. Vehicles. We trust them to get us where we need to go safely. For what we need to do. For what we want to do. For our recreational needs. Now I'm a mechanic by trade. So I'm going to tell you something. that's going to make some of you not want to drive home today. You know that most wheels, most cars... The wheel of your car, in most situations, and I know some things have changed since the days I was a mechanic, but this is, it's, it's still pretty basically the same premise. You know the wheel on your car is held on by one nut. You say, no, mine's got six lug nuts. You're you missing me. you got six lug nuts bolted to a rotor that only has one nut holding it on. And this nut ain't tight. It ain't tight. If you tighten it up, you'll be buying new wheel bearings every week. You got to leave it loose enough to give the bearing just a little bit of play. Not a lot, just a little. And that nut is not even a whole nut. It's what's called a castle nut, which means it has little slots cut in it. It's thin. And then there's a hole in the end of that bolt that sticks out of the spindle of your car that has a piece of wire.
It slides through that hole and binds that castle nut from backing off further than it needs to. So y'all going to drive home today, 65, 75. Chris and Ed are going to do 85. <laughs> With a wire holding your wheel on. And never think twice about it. You're going to think about it now, everything in there. <laughs> Shake that wheel. <laughs> Mechanical failures happen every day. They happen every day. But you know what? That's been a pretty good system. That's not to say it's never failed, but it's been pretty good. So, so much so that people still using it. After, what, 100 years, 100 plus years of making cars, we're still using that same basic concept because it works. We're not even going to talk about airplanes. <laughs> Why do we trust them? Because it's got us everywhere we need to go so far. It's carried most of us to all of our wants and all of our needs and it's better than walking. <laughs> So, you got faith in all these things, but do you have faith in Jesus? Are you willing to trust your livelihood and your life every day to things that falter and fail? To people who falter and fail, but not willing to place your, your life and your eternity in the hands of Jesus. When you place yourself in Christ, that's like putting, that's like putting money in the bank. With the exception is he don't fail. He has ensured your salvation by his own name. And he has put his word above his own name. That's what the Bible says. So do you have enough faith in Christ to just place yourself in him and say, all of me, I'm giving all of me to all of you because I think you're the only one that can keep me safe forever. Are you willing to look to him for healing? To cleanse you of sin. The Bible says this about a lot of people who came to Jesus for, for healing. Is that he made them whole. The word that is translated whole is S-O-Z-O. Sozo. Which is the same word that's translated salvation. Your faith has saved you. Are you willing to trust Christ for the healing and wholeness of your soul? Just like you run to the medicine cabinet for your physical sickness, will you run to Jesus for your spiritual sickness? Because the Bible says spiritually we're dead in sins and trespasses. We, we, we don't just need healing. We need resurrection. Are you willing to trust Jesus to get you to heaven? 
He won't take the wheels off of your life and wreck it. You might have some trials and tribulations, but, but Jesus said what the thief wants to do is kill, steal, and destroy you, but what I came to do is to give you life and to give it to you abundantly. And I believe with all of my heart that when I breathe my last breath here on earth, that Jesus, the one that I have entrusted my life to, the one who has healed me of my sin sickness, is going to take me to heaven when I die. And I believe that with everything in me. And my last question to you is simply this. Are you trusting other things more than you're trusting Him? For instance, are you trusting your own ability to get you to heaven? To heal you? To keep you safe? Are you trusting your own merits? Because I don't have any. I promise you, I know what my life is without Jesus and it's ugly. Are, are you trusting in your own wisdom and in your own ways? It's not going to work. Don't trust those things. Trust Jesus. Only Jesus. If you hadn't done that, I don't know a better day to do that than today. In fact, I don't know that you'll have another day to do that except today. Everybody has faith, but do you have faith in Christ? You exercise it in a thousand ways. And if you give it a little bit of thought, you exercise it in far more ways than I've told you about this morning. You stepping out on faith in a lot of people and a lot of stuff. I'm asking you to do something real simple. Jesus proved who he was by his resurrection. Showed himself alive Luke said for 40 days by many infallible proofs. In other words, you can't. The disciples all went to their death saying Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. They didn't have anything to gain from telling that story. In fact, most of them lost their lives and their livelihoods because they would not back away from that. And what are we doing? We're believing their word. Why are we believing their word? Because they saw it and said it. It sustained them. It got them to where they need to go. We're reading their words and believing their words just like God said them to us. And, and now I'm just asking you, you trust all these other things, will you just trust Christ more than you trust all of that? Trust Him for those things that matter the most. I'm going to ask our musicians to come and lead us an invitational hymn. Would you stand with me? Lord, I'm thankful for these folks, for their patience with me. I'm thankful for the maturity, for the growth. thankful for their commitment to you in so many ways we're thankful for your word God and how it speaks to us and challenges us changes us washes us every day uh, I pray that you'd add your blessing to the reading and the preaching of it this morning Lord if for somebody here that doesn't know Jesus as their as their personal Lord and Savior I pray today would be the day of their salvation, Lord. Just faith. Just faith. Faith pleases you. It's impossible to please you without it. Just faith. Just believe in God that you are. Just believe in Jesus that you are. Just believe in what you said. Enough to put it into practice. Enough to 
to get on board. Enough to deposit our life in that account that's already paid all of our debt. Just to take that medicine that our soul needs more than anything else, that cleansing and that forgiveness and that mercy and that grace. Just to load up for the rest of our journey. Not as a pilot, but as a co-pilot. As one that's willing to sit in the passenger seat and let Christ take us wherever He wants to take us. Knowing that the end of that journey is going to be a finish line on streets of gold. At the foot of the throne of God. I just pray this morning, Lord, for the salvation of every person that's in this room. May we all have faith in nothing more, nothing less than who Jesus is and what He's done. May we live the rest of our lives for His glory. In Jesus' name we pray.
How beautiful is the body of Christ. Isn't it incredible that he calls the church his body? 